This is an SM Media production. Hi folks and welcome to the latest episode of Chronicle, the Rangers journey right here on SM Media. I'm Scott McPike, it's an absolute pleasure to be your host as always. We have arrived at the stage I think a lot of people were desperate to get to, the episode 13, 2011 to 2012. What happens when Rangers finally hit the, the iceberg as it were and Rangers plunge into administration under Craig White? To join me in this part of the episode, I'm delighted to welcome Rob Shorthouse. Rob, it's a pleasure to welcome you on, and I wish we could have picked a better episode, but we have to do it. Episode 13, Scott, that's uh, that's um, that's pretty fitting, isn't it? Because <laughs> uh, what, what, what we're going to talk about here is a whole load of... Well, I was going to say it's bad luck, but it's not really, because uh, as, we, as we all know, what happened was inevitable the minute that Craig White took over the club, so... The, Number thirteen or not, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's bad form. And I should say, Scott, look, look um, thank you so much for your patience. I know you've tried to sort this out with me a couple of times, and and, and I've dicked you about a fair bit. So I, I, I applaud your patience because a lesser man would have told me to bugger off and get somebody else to do the show. But I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you, you showed patience, and uh, and I'm delighted to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to to talking to you about this period because I know you, you're probably no better man to really kind of get into this and talk about it thoroughly because it does, it's one of those things, obviously it's 10 years from this the kind of time that Rangers are into administration and you actually had to, it, it's taken this long to really have a forensic look at this and think like what on earth was going on and how how every, how every Rangers fan managed to get through it because when you actually look at this, like, just, we, we bullet pointed this and you just think how on earth did we survive this like as fans? Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, I think for a number of years, everybody was just wanting to put it to the back of the mind and, and, and forget that happened um, because it was so horrific. And, you know, as, as we'll discuss, I suppose, over the next hour or so, that you know that everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And, you know, it showed Scotland that it's the absolute worst, the, the vindictive way that people, rather than jump into our assistance, were, were, were willing to sort of stand on our head as we were, as we were drowning. Um, but I think with the passage of time, I think winning the league again, I think, you know, qualifying for the Champions League again, you know, the, the, the sort of fabled journey, I think it's only now that we've reached that point, sort of 10 years on, that we've, we're, I think that all of us are able to really look back on it and, and, and able to to properly try and gauge and understand exactly what went on during that terrible period. So, so yeah, it's, um, it's dark old days, but, you know, I think, you know, what happened over the course of this year is, you know, very much a part and should be a part of, of Rangers history and we shouldn't actually try and put it to the back of our mind or, 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 or downplay it because it is so important. And and I think, again, you know, as, as I'm sure we'll discuss that, you know, it's the events of what happened this year and, you know, the subsequent years that I think has strengthened the bond between Rangers fans and the club. Yeah. So while, while I'd never say it's a good thing, um, I think it's an important thing and I think it's right that, that guys like yourselves do the important job of, of looking back and trying to understand it. We'll, 
when it started, obviously, White had took over the club in May. We touched on that last week and obviously how he was miraculously helped by certain journalists who kind of paraded him as a paraded him as a billionaire with and the quote as wealth off the radar. And Rob, your early impressions of White, before we get into talking about obviously the kind of summer where it was a it felt like a new era, but I mean, we spoke about it last week to a degree. I mean, Craig White, he didn't Although he was paraded as a billionaire and he was certainly written as a billionaire, when you, you took one look at White and you thought, this isn't a billionaire. Yeah, well, nobody heard of him. Yeah. You know, that that's that, that should be the first first warning sign, I guess, because Scotland's a small place and you know, its successful sons and daughters are, you know, fairly well publicized. And for a guy who was allegedly a billionaire to, to appear out of nowhere. And take over, you know, the most successful club in the land, um, and you know you had to Google them. Mm-hmm. Um, should have been a warning sign, I suppose. But, but, uh, but Scott, to be honest with you, and and I think we should be honest that, you know, all of us had grown sick and weary of David Murray yeah. and and all the shenanigans and everything going on. Um, so I think we, I mean, we have to say, it, I mean, we did uh, the vast majority of us welcomed welcomed him with open arms mm-hmm. because. You know what he promised was to wipe out all the debt, to you know to invest in the squad, to do all these amazing things. Um, we had you know new owners in the in the boardroom, we had a new manager in the in the dressing room, and and yeah, so it, it's it's it would be easy to look back and say, oh, ha you know I I I knew he was a wrong and right from the start, but nobody really did, and and everybody was willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, and as you say, the papers who. You know, guys my age, you know, you, you grow up and you think, well, you know, the, the the papers must have done their due diligence in this guy for them to be so positive and and overwhelmingly um, upbeat about him. Um, so that so that initial period when he came in, you know, everybody was everybody was positive, everybody was looking forward. Um, I mean, I think if you do apply the benefit of hindsight uh, to it, then as I say, warning number one is you know nobody had heard of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, as I say, that's very, very unusual. Wealth. One and number two is that, you know, he didn't have the look of a man who was a billionaire. No. Now that may that that may that may seem weird, because um, you know what does a billionaire look like? But but you know, there are trappings that come from being incredibly wealthy. You know, the flash cars, the, the nice office, the all you know, all the stuff that we've grown up through the Murray era, you know, the private jets and the vineyards and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, and there was no evidence of any of that. And again, that should have been a warning sign. Um, and we didn't know, or, or it wasn't really easily understood where his wealth had come from. Um, you know, David Murray had metals, and you know, Tom Hunter and had sports, but and, and the, the guys at Stagecoach, you know, the suitors, and all you could always tell with the people who were super rich in yeah. Scotland so where they got their money from. Yeah. Yeah, usually. Well, or, or just well, a name would spring to mind, Scott. You know, like, as I say, you know, the, the, the stagecoach guys, the, the you know, the, the Tom Hunter with the sports company and all that kind of stuff. These, the, you, you would, you would, you would put the billionaire's name next to a company or yes. a thing, and you could not, you, you could not do that with Craig White. Mm-hmm. And again, that's um, that should have been a warning. But we were desperate for we were desperate for something new, and we were desperate for somebody to lift the gloom that was enveloping the club, despite the fact that we were champions and uh, and, and Craig White came forward and, and, and I'm sorry to say we were all pretty pretty happy about it at the time. 
Yeah, and that's that's it as well. I mean, I remember going into that summer being really, really excited because it felt like, I mean, Walter had worked, Walter Smith had worked miracles to get that club to win three three titles in a row, and you could see the squad badly needed refreshed. And as you say, White was saying, there's money there for new players. I think it was twenty five million over five years. Like you look at that and you think, like, well, wait, well, wait a minute, that's a lot more than David Murray was was certainly giving out at the time. I mean, two seasons before Rangers had signed Jerome Rotan in a loan deal, so that that whole period of excitement. And obviously, McCoy was coming on as manager as well. What was the kind of what was your kind of memories of that? Like we spoke about it last week about like McCoyst coming in and obviously it, the whole thing with McCoyst was he hadn't failed at anything. He was always he'd done what he'd done brilliant as a player. He went to the media and done really well. He then came into coaching. There wasn't a there wasn't a negative thing on his CD. So at the time you were thinking, right, this is a this feels like a new era and McCoyst have learned everything to Walter. It felt like just a new era, didn't it? It did, even although it was continuity because mm-hmm. it had been a promotion from, from within. And, you know, there had never been any doubt. You know, Ali was taking over that job and we'd known it for, I don't know how long, certainly Walter had, when Walter said that was going to be his last season, there was never any talk of, right, we're now in the hunt for a new manager. It was it was, it was was immediately, you know, this is Ali. Ali's going to step up and take it. So we didn't have... Ali measured against anybody else, you know, like we're, we're going for X manager or Y manager. It was just, we're having McCoyst. And Scott, I have to be perfectly honest with you again. Um, you know, I'm 47 year old. I grew up with uh, with Ali McCoy scoring goals for Rangers and doing unbelievable things for Rangers. Mm-hmm. He is my hero. Yeah, I love the guy. Um, and even now, after everything that happened uh, during his spell as manager, I still love the guy. Mm-hmm. Um so I couldn't have been more excited about, about, about Alan McCoyst getting getting the job. One, because he was Alan McCoyst and, you know, I loved him. And when I was a boy, I had posters of him on my bedroom wall and uh, and all the classic things. And two, exactly as you say, um, he had he had never failed at anything and he had served his apprenticeship under Walter Smith. Uh, and what a, what, what a way to learn, you know, how to be a manager, you know, under, under the guise of that guy. So, so I... I Again, you know, you can you can you can look at it through the sort of lens of twenty twenty hindsight. But at the time, I was absolutely overjoyed and over the moon. And I know some people had their doubts at the time, but I just wasn't one of them. I just could not wait for it because it's Alan McCoy's manager of Rangers. How perfect does that sound? Yeah, and the summer of two thousand eleven. I think this is a bizarre summer in the sense that McCoy's had his targets. I mean, we'll we'll get through them. Kenny Miller was coming back, was maybe coming back. David Goodwillie, Craig Conway, Wesley Verhock, Roland Juhas, Carlos Queller. I mean, that's a decent list of targets. I think. I, I think I was optimistic about near enough all of them because they all seemed good fits for in the squad. As we say, badly needed players. But did the alarm bell start start ringing when some of the bids were going in? I think, for example, I mean, David Goodwillie is probably a good example. David Goodwillie was. Around about kind of one point five to two million Scotland international done really well at Dundee United and the bits that were coming in were three hundred grand and then later on four hundred grand. I mean, there's there's been I know a lot of businessmen and I know a lot of businessmen are quite tight with money, but there's tight with money and then there's just antagonising which this seems like this this kind of when you look back you were thinking. 
Like, what is this? Why, why are Rangers bidding that low for a player who they desperately want? Like, and that was at the time. It wasn't like, oh, it's because there's no money there. It was because, all oh, right, this guy maybe doesn't understand that trans in the transfer front. You need, you can't do that. You can't be as tight. Was that kind of the feeling at the time? If you remember. <sighs> I mean, the transfer window, you're right, it is weird. Um, and it's it's almost like there's, it's a transfer window in two parts. Mm-hmm. Because we have that early part that you've talked about, Scott, where, you know, it was... You're, you're, you're hearing these stories of, you know, it's bidding for David Goodwillie, you know, and putting a bid in, and then the next day raising it by a fiver, and then the next day raising it by another fiver. Yeah. Um, I, 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 and that's just not how it's done. No. Um and, you know, to begin with, you're sort of thinking, well, you know, he just doesn't know what he's doing yet and he's just getting to grips. And, you know, I'm sure there'd have been people thinking, well, quite right, you know, just, you know, we're Rangers and you're Dundee United and we'll just offer you whatever we're going to offer you and you should just bloody well take it. But it's almost as if um, that first part of the transfer window when we were bidding for Goodwillie and Queller and all these people, that White was more keen to be seen to be doing something as yeah. opposed to actually wanting to, wanting to land the players. Um, because there's no way that Dundee United... I, I mean, Dundee United w- would find it very hard to sell to us anyway. Um, so they'd be, they, they would be wanting to put a premium. If you were going to sell David Goodwillie to Blackburn Rovers for £2 million, they would want £2.5 million from us. Um, and for us to come in at these ludicrously low bids just points to the fact that actually he, it, this was all about you know, being able to say, well, I'm bidding for players, but he wasn't really serious about spending the cash. So I think to answer your question, your earlier question, um, Scott, that I think as the summer started to go on, alarm bells did start to ring because we were promised money was going to be spent and then it wasn't. Now, now that's not that's that's not entirely fair because we did get Lee Wallace quite early on yeah, um, for, for, de- for decent money. But that was done and dusted, and then we get into this sort of farrago of all these ridiculously low bids and and, and, and not being particularly serious about what we were doing in the, in the transfer window. So alarm bells did start to ring. Obviously, then we had the disaster of Europe, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, mm-hmm. And it was towards the end, the end of that window, that we actually started to buy some players, and we bought some decent ones in the end up. But they were all relatively low cost. Uh, and they certainly, they certainly weren't the players that McCoy's was after at the start of the window. Let's put it that way. No, and I mean, there's a couple I want to touch on. I mean, the Carlos Queller one, I think I've never seen anything like that. Like, Rangers did agree a fee. I think it was like one and a half million, but there was nothing followed up. And I'm like, what is, what is actually going on there? Because, I mean, when when we heard that Carlos Queller was coming back, we were like, oh, what? This is brilliant. This is exactly what Rangers need. Weir and Baguera kind of reached our... We are certainly had reached the end of his career. I think Baguera was kind of looking to go. I think that area did need refreshed. And Queller coming back, I thought, was like a massive statement. And the boy you has as well, like, that was going to be the partnership. Verhoek, I, I, a lot of people seem to think he was the real deal. Kenny Miller as well was an interesting one because if you remember... Rangers had sold them that summer for four hundred grand, and were getting the opportunity to get them back. I think cheaper. I don't think there was a lot. I don't think. I think he was desperate to get out of Turkey, and it just felt as as you say, it just felt as if there was never. It was never a case of Rangers were trying to get him back. It was just like it was. 
he was desperate to come back, but Cardiff seemed to be winning the race. Cardiff were bidding more money. I mean, I I know people that know Craig Conway, and I know that what Cardiff offered them and what Rangers offered them. I mean, Cardiff were nearly double the offer. And I don't care if you're a Rangers fan or not, you're not taking that. No, of course not. Of course not. And again, you know, that points towards the fact that, that, that we were talking about just there, that these were not serious bids. These no. were not the actions of a chairman um, and a board and a sort of management team who were actually desperate to sign these players. It was all about, you know, look what, look who I'm after. Uh, and Queller, I mean, if you want to piss off the Rangers sport, do it, do what he did with Queller because, yeah. you know, a centre half more beloved, you're, you're, you're less likely, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine. You know, we, we loved Carlos Queller uh, and to have him dangled in front of us uh, in that way was, yeah, it was tough going because I, I can't remember when it was. It was one of the papers and possibly even the Rangers News, or not the Rangers News, Chris, I'm sure my age, but, but um, I remember seeing, you know, a picture of uh, Carlos Queller during that point and it just said the return of the king. Yeah. And you were like, how excited were we to 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 be having this guy back? And um, and it was all just nonsense, sadly. And you mentioned there about the Rangers news, and I think that's an interesting point. Do you remember the Rangers news was weekly up until that point, and then it was said to be cost cutting that they put it to a monthly magazine, like things like that. You just think back back to like what was going on there, and and you you've obviously mentioned before about obviously your time working with Gordon Smith and. He brought in Gordon Smith to be the director of football, and Gordon Smith's been on this, been on the channel. He's a really nice guy, and I loved interviewing him. And but he didn't. He struck me when I asked him about his role at Rangers at this time. He didn't really seem to have one. It was kind of just a title, and it was the same way. Was it Ali Russell was a, a marketing guy at the time? I forget. I think was he the chief yeah. operating officer or something like. These were two appointments that you can question what what on earth they were doing. Like Gordon Smith in particular, I remember saying about the. When he knew alarm bells were ringing, when he got a phone call from the the hotel in Germany that they hadn't been paid, and it was just you're yeah. thinking like at the time, like what on earth is going on? Because it just seems as if immediately he was just trying to he was trying to find a way to get the club into administration. Even then, and we'll touch on Europe in a second, but you obviously know Gordon Smith better than me. Was was that the kind of impression you got off him as well, that there wasn't really a, a job there, it was just a title more than anything? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And look, for, for, for listeners that may not know, so I, I worked with Gordon Smith um, when he was the chief executive of the SFA, so mm-hmm. I, I was the communications, communications director of the SFA at the time. You know, I worked, worked incredibly closely with him. He's a, as you've, as you've rightly said, he's an absolutely smashing guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he lives and breathes Glasgow Rangers. Um, and if you know, somebody knocks on your door and offers you the job of director of football at Rangers, then of course you're going to take it. But he was not the director of football. No. He was not involved in anything, anything like that. He, he, had, he, had, he had literally nothing nothing director of football-ish to do at the club. Uh, it, it was just a title. It was a, it was a way of bringing somebody in that looked like a serious appointment, but it wasn't treated seriously. And, you know, Gordon being Gordon, I'm sure he's very discreet and and you know doing the right thing when he talks about his time there. But there's no question that this was just a made-up post that was again another part of the the PR strategy by by Craig White to make it look as if he was doing stuff. And on Ali Russell, um, 
I mean, Ali, for, for a guy, again, with no discernible background, um, to be brought in as chief operating officer, which yeah. is a new post at the club with this mandate that he was absolutely not equipped to fulfil. Again, was just a, here's another guy. Here's another guy who, to be fair to Ali, um, who I met a few times, you know, he was, he, was, he was good on telly and I think that's why he was, he was recruited because he was somebody that they could roll out and um, he was a good looking big swine and he was good on the telly and, mm-hmm. and it was just that here is, here is somebody that can do the media for us and unfortunately that was, that was all he was good at because it was, there was certainly no improvement in any of the things that he was supposed to be doing. And um, I kind of get that to the degree because, yeah, and I kind of get that to the degree because when you, the, the couple of times that White was interviewed he didn't come across a guy who would, and that that's the, that leads to the fact about the you you should have been able to see through the billionaire rules because billionaires and prominent businessmen seem to go through media training. They seem to be well equipped to talk about themselves, and he just didn't strike me as a guy. Even from then, I was thinking, oh, he's he's maybe down to earth. He's maybe just shy, but it just didn't look as if he was any good in front of a camera. No, it was terrible. Yeah, if if, if you if you recall, he was. Sort of, I know he's got kind of starey eyes anyway, but you know he would be particularly, you know, it looked like every interview he was doing, he had his 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 arse cheeks totally clenched. He was yes. nervous. He couldn't relax. He would sort of stutter and stammer his way through things, and yeah, he was. Yeah, you're right. I mean, most most people when they reach the top of that type that type of field, they've had some form of coaching. Guys like me. Are usually employed to, to, yeah, to exactly. help and do that kind of thing, um, but he was he was just god awful and he didn't inspire any confidence. But again, you know, we have to be we have to be sort of honest with ourselves and say, even even at that at the time, we were so glad he wasn't David Murray that I think cut him an awful lot. We cut him an awful lot of slack. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and I think that's and it was that desperation thing just desperate for something different and something fresh because remember the tail end of the Murray time it was just a and every day was just a oh there's, a, there's problems there and David Murray was openly saying there was problems but he was as David Murray was prone to do he wouldn't say his part in them he would just say there was problems but if there were if the, the seeds were planted for administration they certainly were come the end of August Rob do you th- See if Rangers had qualified for the Champions League. This has always been the thing with me, and I, I don't know about yourself what you think about this, but if Rangers had qualified for the Champions League had got, and got that money, do you think this would have happened at the time it happened, administration? Or did this just delayed, would that just have delayed the inevitable? Because I've always wondered, because if you look at White after the Maribor game in particular, it just looks a man who knows, like, oh, this is crashing and burning before my eyes, and I've always wondered if the European fortunes were different, would there would we maybe be talking about this in a different way? The honest answer is I just don't know. Um, I mean, because nobody really, even now, 10 years on, nobody can really understand properly what his plan was. And now his plan ultimately was, I think, to to take the club into administration, do a pre-pack, come, come out, um, all the debt's gone and, you know, He's he's in charge of an asset that's you know worth considerably more than than he's paid for it. Yeah. So I think that was I think that was always the plan, but I think that the the European calamity um, 
took it to a place that, that even he wasn't expecting. So, yes, it, yes, it accelerated it, but I also think it intensified it because I never, I don't know if if, if he ever thought the liquidation was, was something that's going to happen. I think it was a quick administration back out again and uh, he's 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 home free because he's got something that's that's debt free and, and he's now the owner of it. Um, and, and and some of the actions that he did, you know, all that kind of short term stuff, you know, the the ticketus deal, all mm-hmm. these different things, all point towards a let me get in there, you know, let me um, let me let me do this quick administration back out again, and, and off we pop. And I think all of that was dependent on some sort of European income. Yeah. So I don't think it was just a question a, a question of timing alone. I think that what happens on the field against Malmbone and against Mar- Maribor actually. Um, leads leads us not to administration, but to the the the, the, the eventual, you know, absolute calamity that befell us um, over the course of summer 2012. So, so yeah, uh, I mean, there's nothing good to say about anything that's to do with his plan no. for the club. But you know, the the European results, they just couldn't have been any more disastrous, both from a football and then from a financial point of view. Yeah, I mean, football and wise they were disastrous, and at the time they felt like a disaster and. But League Cup exit aside, obviously, as well, the league the league start couldn't have been any better. Obviously, the first game against Hearts was a bit weird because Hearts were, I thought Hearts were magnificent, actually, and Rangers were lucky to get a point. But after that, this run, by early October, Rangers were 10 points clear of Celtic and 15 points clear by November, and it just seemed to be going so well in the league. And I remember somebody saying at the time, it was like, Rangers could go into administration and still be top of the league. And that's that's what you were thinking at the time. You, were, you weren't thinking about, oh, Rangers going into administration would be this financial disaster. You actually thought Rangers could be in administration and still win the league because they were that far clear. Would you remember about that start of the season? Because it just seemed like every week Rangers were just winning and that was all that mattered at the time. You're 100% correct. And, um, and it was in such sharp contrast to to those European games because yeah. we were, we were we, I mean just to touch on them for a minute uh, you know, they were dreadful performances yes um, you know we, we got uh, when when Malmo came to Ibrox it was it was obvious that they were sort of the ones who were who were seventeen games into the season um, because they just outplayed us they were just so much better than us and you know. On a glorious sunny night, actually, I think it was my birthday as well. Um, you know, they, they just they just absolutely did us. Um, and then you know the um, you know the away game. I mean, where do you even start with the with with the away game of um, you know, the total disaster of of um, you know Whitaker sending off and Bagheras sending off and you know oh, you know it was just an absolute calamity. So that and then into the Maribor game where we where, where we were terrible as well. Um, uh, you know, it's just, yeah, all of it was, all of it was sort of horrific in, in Europe. But then, as you say, our league form was terrific. You know, we, we were we were streets ahead of Celtic. You know, we were absolutely scorching ahead of them. And uh, you know, it, it, it all sort of turns on that that that, that weekend where Celtic were, I think, three 0 down at half time yeah. to Marmark, and, and and came back to go three each, and then. We uh, we we conceded our ninety fifth minute equaliser against St Mirren at Ibrox to to and, and all kind of turned on on, on that results wise, but 
we were so good. We were so good. We were we were absolutely cruising through all the games, and uh, you, know, you were looking across the city and you were thinking, you know, they are absolutely hopeless. So um, there's nothing to there's nothing to be concerned about on the football point of view. No, absolutely not. And once one player who was standing out like I saw a thumb that's that season was Stephen Naismith, and he was just I mean every week he was scoring goals. He just looked it looked as if he'd stepped up as well when he looked as if this was a this was his proper kind of coming out period for Rangers, but obviously suffers that really bad injury. I think it was at Rugby Park and Rangers going to lose that game and you just think this that seemed to be that commandment game sticks out to me. It just seemed to be the beginning of this bad run that Rangers went on before you know it, Celtic had went in this magnificent run. That Naismith injury was a really sore one, wasn't it? He'd been playing so well, hadn't he? Yeah. He'd just he been had. I think he's I think he scored nine goals before the injury. Mm-hmm. Um and he was and him and Yelovich were on fire and you know, the partnership was magnificent and you know it really was you know I think the best of the best that we'd ever seen of Stephen Naismith at, at the start of that season. He was just so good, looked so composed, so confident. You know, he was he was scoring goals, playing really well, and then he gets that injury and uh and it's just a disaster because not 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 just for him and not just for you know um you know, the squad of players, but we didn't have any data to replace them. No. You know, we were, when the, the transfers that we had done in the summer were mostly defensive. Um, so we didn't have somebody ready to step into his shoes. So when he went out injured, you know, you were just looking at the squad and thinking, who replaces this guy? You know, who's, who's going to, um, <coughs> who's going to step up and fill the void, fill the void in it? And of course it'd be impossible because he'd been playing so well. Yeah, he'd stepped up again. It was only when you say he couldn't be replaced at that point because he was so good. Yelovich was standing out as well. He was magnificent. But off the field, it was beginning to it was beginning to come to the surface that there might be something else regarding Craig White. The infamous BBC documentary that brought up his business past that he was obviously disqualified as a company director for seven years. He was there was a lot of things that raised a lot of eyebrows and alarm bells for me at that point were certainly ringing loud that always certainly not met the eye regarding Craig White. Yeah, that BBC documentary. And I think at the time, everybody was pretty angry about it. Yeah. You know, it was like, you know, the the BBC have stitched us up here. Do you remember he said Um, he was going to sue? Yeah. Well, well, it wasn't the only time that he said he was going to sue. He was... uh, he was fairly he was fairly quick off the mark when it came to threatening people with legal action. But yeah, no, the BBC document documentary came out. And so I can't remember when in the season that appeared. I think it was. I'm, I think it was towards the end of October. I think. Was it right about then? Was it? I think so. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, uh, and you know, at that point, even though alarm bells were ringing and all this kind of stuff, we were playing great on the park. So yeah, there was there was a sense of you know, I don't want to believe this. Um, amongst the support, and you know the, the BBC documentary just paint, couldn't have painted as in a more sort of ridiculous light, could it? You know, with all the, you know, what was it ex porn star and God knows what else uh, that, that, that were all getting interviewed, and uh, you know we just looked, we just looked shambolic and ridiculous, and it made people angry because it, you were looking at thinking this cannot be true, this cannot be the case that this is this is this is who we are being run by and how we're being run, um, and as you say. You know, dear old, dear old Craig and his and his uh, Rottweilers immediately jumped up and said, "We're going to sue." And funnily enough, uh, like everybody else, he said he was going to sue. He didn't do. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't follow through on it. So, 
and we all know why that doesn't happen. It's because it's it's hard to sue somebody when it's likely to be true. But yes. and it was it was that thing of that the evidence was right in front of you, but you were all yeah, you were in that frame of mind of yeah, this is this is a witch hunt, this is the new Rangers guy, they're they're out to get him and things like that. And you were it was it was desperation by the Rangers fans because as we say, we'd we've spoken about Murray in great detail in the past few weeks and it was it was just a relief to not have that guy. So now the new guy, and then you're you're being he's being paraded as this really bad businessman, and you're just like, please no, you're 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 praying you're praying to yourself that this isn't true, and you were at the time you were hoping that this was nonsense, and when he said he was suing, you were like, all right, okay, this is a complete lie, and it turned out not to be. And it was so outlandish, all the things that were being said. You know, it yeah. was so unusual and weird and the things that you would not associate with Glasgow Rangers. No. Um, that it, it, it made it hard to believe. You know, even even just the nature of what was being 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 presented to you by, you know, Mark Daly and the guys at the BBC, you were just thinking, oh, well, look, this cannot be true. And, and the thing is, Mark Daly and I went to university together. We've known each other for mm-hmm. close to 30 years. And I remember, I remember, I phoned him up and I think I was quite, quite short with him. I said, look, what, what a pish, what, what are you up to? And he's like, look, I'm telling you, this is absolutely true and Rangers are in trouble. Um, and I think we may have had crosswords, um, despite the fact we've been pals for all, all, all these years. And uh, and not everything he said was was true, but there was, there was certainly enough in that documentary that subsequently, three months later, we would look back on and go, well, perhaps we should have... We were obviously, I we were obviously hearing that hearing that with the BBC. But do you remember at the time the, the whispers behind the scenes that there was that certainly all was not right? I mean, the the famous story about the the coffee machine and things like that. There was there was certainly a lot of whispers around the around kind of people you spoke to around Ibrox that things weren't all that met the eye. With white, was there anything kind of stood out to you in that time before kind of Christmas and before January about just who might be actually there? Yeah, I think it was it was probably around about the November December time. I think that you know, obviously because I'd worked in football and mm-hmm. you know some of the jobs I've done over the years, I, I know quite a few of the guys um, over at over at Ibrooks, and you know they would start telling tales of you know basic maintenance not getting done, yeah. you know, bills not getting paid. You know the, the, the coffee machine, of course, is 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 the example, and also. You, know, you started to notice you know, that things around about the stadium were starting to look a bit tatty and things that were broken weren't they getting fixed and all this kind of stuff. And again, you know, I don't want to don't want to say that you know at that point everybody's jumping up and down saying you know I know what's going to happen if, uh, in, in two months' time, but the, the warning signs were definitely there. Um, and as I say, some of the guys that that I know would be telling telling stories of. Probably point more towards uncertainty than, than than anything else that they just didn't understand why certain things like basic maintenance and all that kind of stuff wasn't being carried out. Yeah, and on the on the field, the the situation was becoming a bit worse as well. The the two defeats in Christmas by St Mirren and Celtic away, obviously the the fifteen point lead had been relinquished, and it just wasn't good. I mean, I remember that Celtic game. I watched that. I watched that abroad, and I remember leaving the pub that night thinking. 
this this feels bad. This felt like a because that lead was so high, and as we say, Celtic were on a magnificent run, but how does that run go from 15 points clear to two points behind in the space of four or five games, really? And it was that bad. It was it was that quick. There, there wasn't any... Rangers only dropped, when you th- when you look at it here, there was a loss, three losses to Kilmarnock, St Mirren and Celtic, and two draws at home to St Mirren and St Johnson. And that isn't bad league form, but because of cause of how high the lead was, it just looked so quick that the, the lead was away. It was, and Celtic went on an inexplicable run of ridiculous form. I think they went on, like, sort of 22 games. Yeah, I don't think they lost a game that season. Yeah, they just won every game. And meanwhile, we were dropping points left, right and centre. Mm-hmm. And, and as you say, like, even when you look at towards the end of the season, um, our league form's not that bad. Um, no. we, we th- it all collapses around about that that sort of month, six weeks, around about Christmas time, starting with the um, the draw, as I say, uh, against St Mirren. And I remember I remember that that game against St Mirren, um, because the Celtic game was the lunchtime kickoff, um, mm-hmm. and I lived I, I lived in Ibrox, um, so I just used to walk around to the Kensington uh, and watch mm-hmm. whatever lunchtime games on, and then could walk straight to Ibrox. Um, and the mood in the Kenston was absolutely jubilant because, you know, here was this calamity of a Celtic team, 3-0 down to Kilmarnock. Um, and then they sort of, you know, pulled it back and it was three each. But even then they were like, well, we're playing sitting around at home, so that's going to be another two points ahead. And, you know, it was hard to imagine, actually, that what happened then happened because we, we just felt <coughs> and we were so, so far ahead at that point. Yeah, and it just fell so quickly and Get into 2012, the turn of the year. January, Rangers Rangers won games, two, the 3-0 win over Motherwell and the, a 2-1 win away to St. Johnson, a draw to Aberdeen and a 4-0 win over Hibs. But the whole talk over January was, would Nikita Jelovic be staying at Rangers or would he be leaving? Now, it became very quickly that Nikita Jelovic would be leaving. It was just the who was the, what was the highest bidder. Now, we spoke a, a couple of weeks ago in an episode about how bad Rangers negotiating was back in the day, like obviously infamously the one that sticks out to me, Mikel Arteta bought for six and a half million improves as a player and then leaves for three now this wasn't this bad but it certainly raised even the most optimistic Rangers fans eyebrows that Jelovic had come in for four million and Rob how good was Jelovic in that that 18 months he was at Ibrox, he was just such a such a clinical striker, he was just a I probably don't think I've seen a striker more complete than Jelovic at Ibrox. I really believe that. He's He was terrific. There's yeah. just no doubt about it. And the, what he went for, which was, what, six million? Yeah, just, un, just under six, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, for the love of for the love of God, I mean, how does that happen? How does that happen? You know, somebody who is as good as he is um, to go for that, that criminally low amount of money. And again, that just shows you that at that point, you know, White is just desperate to bring sort of cash into the club. Um, and you know, if we didn't, if we didn't know before what was coming, we certainly knew at that point because um, he he sold the he sold the crown jewels, and you know, on the park the, the impact on the park was immediate. We'd lost Naismith, and and when we lost Naismith, we were we were worried that we didn't have anybody up there to help us out. 
Yeah. Um, and it was Eljelovic, and uh, and that's just a disaster. A, a disaster on every, no matter which way you look at it, from a footballing point of view, from a financial point of view, any any way you look at it, the the, the selling of Eljelovic for the amount of money that we got is an absolute disaster. I remember that night. It was deadline day that Eljelovic uh, was sold, and I remember that night the. Yelovich was being sold. We all knew he was going, but it was like, oh, who's coming in to replace him? Because as you say, it was so important. You had to replace that. Rangers, they still had a chance to win the league at this point. It wasn't, I mean, it becomes two weeks later, the league's over. But when you when you actually look at that deadline day, you were thinking who was coming in. I remember Jordan Rhodes was being touted as like, oh, possibly he could be coming in. And, and I'll never, ever forget this because this is when I real, this is when I realised that, yeah, something's, this isn't right. This, and, do you remember McCoy's coming out of Ibrox that night and he wouldn't speak to the media and he just looked a guy who was just like scunnered. Just, it's always yeah. stuck out to me. He just looked like, he's, he's obviously been in there. I remember it, it stuck out. He was trying to sign Callum Higginbottom who was just coming through at Falkirk and he couldn't get him. And that was true. And you were just like, we can't sign anyone from Falkirk. That's how bad this is. And that's when it was just for me like, and that night, you just look back at it and you look at McCoy's face and he knows what's coming. He has to. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, he would have known what was coming for a, yeah. a, a, a while, to be honest. But, you know, yeah, I mean, the selling of Yelovich was just a disaster. And look, you know, there's plenty of disasters going to befall us. And, and you know, we, we find out about the selling of the Arsenal shares and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's lots of lots of things that went wrong, but the um, the, uh, the the selling of Yelovich was an absolute um, sort of punch to the gut. It was a punch in the gut, and the administration was becoming more and more inevitable when you actually look at look at it. I mean, HMRC had visited regarding the that White had went in, and apparently, well. It's it's here. He hadn't paid PAYE or VAT since he'd walked in, and it was becoming a stage. I think it was nine million pounds. I think the debt was as well. And obviously, we'll touch in the tax case in a few minutes. But the the kind of big tax case. But it went in and stopped paying PAYE and VAT. It almost seems to be, and you might disagree, but that seems to be on purpose. That seems to be building up a bill for the inevitable to happen, is that fair to say? It just doesn't make any sense, Scott. That's, this is the thing, right? So you could say, you could try and strip away everything and figure out what this man's plan was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think he was particularly clever, And but he, he had he had an idea in his head and he, and, and he went for it, right? So he's sort of courageous in that sense. But if you speak to anybody that runs a business, I, I don't know what line of work you're in, I don't know whether... You own your own business or whatever, but from a, from from the smallest of business to the large, the one thing you do not want to do is piss off the tax man. No, you certainly don't. Now, now we had the big tax case looming over us and had been there for years, so so we were on HMRC's radar anyway. Yeah. Um. So 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 they were looking at us, and then for you to to do the most basic criminal thing of you know, not paying your PAYE and, and, and VAT and everything else. The thing, the thing that's immediately going to get the tax man jumping all over you um, just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, it, there may have been a strategy, there may have been a plan, but but making an enemy of HMRC when, you know, 
they will be involved in the administration process and all that kind of stuff. It just just was completely crackers. And for the life of me, I cannot think what he was doing. See what I don't get about it as well. And the tax the tax case was meant to, I think the verdict was meant to be in something like October, November, and it kept being put back. So say for example, the tax case the tax case verdict had come through in maybe October and it was not and it was obviously it was a, a win for Rangers. This would have been in the background as well. So although you'd had that thing with HMRC, that would maybe have been out of the way. This would have just gathered and gathered as well. So as you say, why are you make why are you bringing in another thing with HMRC? It's it's we it's just it's bizarre and it leads to this thing of what actually was his plan. Well, well HMRC are the, are, are the people that have the power to go to the court and issue a winding up order. Yeah, exactly. You know, if they if they if they, if they go to the court and say. You know, this guy's been here for six months, and in the six months he's been there, he's he's run up a, a, a debt to the public purse of nine million quid. Um, we would like we would like our money. Thanks very much. And if not, we want we want the business wound up. None of it makes any sense. I, no. As I say, you know, wiser wiser men than than me, uh, and and if you'll forgive me, you, um, I've sort of looked at this to try and figure out what the hell he was up to. It does it to accounts as well, yeah. On you go, sorry. Yeah, so I just gonna say that as well, no accounts, all these different things, all the things that will make an enemy of the of the one organization you do not want to make an enemy of is what he saw set out to do right from the off. And and yeah, that, we, we, we 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 may we may, we may be missing something here, but for the life of me, I, I can't think what it is because that that just makes no sense. That makes and, no sense on any level. Yeah, and submitting accounts, as you know, if you fail to submit your accounts, it means you can't get a license for European football. So when he's failing to submit these accounts, he's also sacrificing European income for the following season because Rangers can't get a license. So it leads to it leads to this thing of was this all preordained? Was it was it all a if you forgive me, a, a wee conspiracy? Because that's mm. I can't understand that for life. I me. Mean, I know the ticketist thing was, we'll touch on that in a wee minute, but the ticketist thing was obviously sacrificing season ticket income for, for a quick buck. But this to me is, you're, you're failing to submit accounts, you're forfeiting a European licence. So where's that where's, where's that income going to come from? Yeah. But I mean, I think by that point, I think by the time the accounting season comes around, he knows that the, the goose is cooked. So yeah. he's like, well... You know, we're we're in, we're in deep trouble, and, and you know if I submit the accounts now, which would have shown that the club kind of continues. I I think I, again I, I don't run my own business, and I don't I can't say with any certainty how it works. But if you submit accounts that show that you are not a going concern, then I think you know I think that's a, that that is a bad thing to do. So he probably held back on that because he knew that the uh, that the goose was cooked in that front. But again. How it all pieces together is, is is any kind of plan or strategy. I just I don't I don't know. I, I I honestly think that he went in there with a plan, as I said earlier, of in quick administration back out again, clear clear a bunch of debt, and off we go. Um, and he lost control of the situation. Yeah. I, I I don't I, I don't agree. I don't. I, I've never been one to believe in grand conspiracies. I more often than not things happen because people are idiots and they can cop things up. And I think in, I think in this case. That's certainly what's happened. He's he's had a plan and it's all gone completely to hell. And 
he's just he's just allowed the world to fold in on in on itself. Now, yeah. um, I, as I say, he 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 could be a lot smarter than he looks and sounds, and and, and his his actions pointed towards, but I, I don't see how that can possibly be the case. I think he just lost control. Yeah, but on the thirteenth of February, he seemed to have control because. The worst fears were realised. They'd filed the legal papers at the court of session to, to of the intention to appoint administrators, and it was obviously confirmed the following day. And he was able to appoint Duffin Phelps, his his own administrators, and HMRC. You can argue did HMRC do the best by Rangers and the taxpayer? I certainly don't think they did. But White had White was able to get his own administrators in, and usually, when that happens, that leads to alarm bells of wait a minute but at the time it was like as you say was it gonna was the plan still then to for this quick pre-pack admin to come go straight in and come straight out and just get the debt away as quickly as possible but what was your memories of that day when the administration was announced and obviously the when Duff and Phelps come in I, I mean the day itself was, was just horrific I mean I lived five minutes uh, along the road from Ibrox on Midlock Street mm-hmm. um and over the course of that afternoon, um, I was working for the police at the time, right. and you know, all the rumours started started to circulate. You know, and it was pretty clear that the police had an interest mm-hmm. in what was going on uh, at that point. And no, it was just a, just a horrible, horrible day. And you know, I was sat in the house, and you know, you just knew five minutes like when Craig White did that speech on the steps you know, I'm thinking to myself this is a this is just a complete amount of disaster and, you know you can't I, I I think I even tried to delude myself I remember speaking to my wife that night um and saying well maybe it's maybe it's for the best maybe you know gun administration sort things out we'll come back come back again but you know she wasn't believing me and I wasn't believing myself when it was because no. it just it just felt like such a disaster and you know you know, the next day having to go to your work and, you know, just, uh, it was just completely horrible. And um, on the point about Duffin Phelps, this is where I'm going to contradict myself because, you know, I say I don't, I don't agree with sort of grand conspiracies and all that kind of stuff. I do think the whole kind of Craig White, Charles Green, Duffin Phelps thing, and I know it's been investigated and therefore I can't possibly speculate about what's going on, but I do think there was something there, um, you know, and that's why he was so keen to get Duffin Phelps and his administrators and perhaps... If it hadn't been those guys, then things might have turned out differently. Um, you know, one thing that you, if you look at anybody that goes into administration, the first thing that the administrators want to come in and do is firstly cut costs. Yes. And sec- and secondly, um, raise raise money by selling assets. And the administrators certainly looked to cut costs, and there was all this you know, the stuff with the. The team taking wage cuts and all this various stuff, but they never seriously, I don't think, looked to to raise money because, you know, we obviously you know we want to have a fabulous training ground, but we don't actually need it. You know, the mm-hmm. team could have, if the worst kept the worst, could have trained at Ibrox and all this kind of stuff, and there was never any talk about selling the training centre, no, which would have raised millions and millions and millions, you know, and it was never done. And that kind of points again, you know, to the layman, to the to to the, the sort of 
observers like you and I, why did they not do that? Why did they not sell the training ground immediately? Why did they not try and do something with the stadium? Why did they not raise serious cash? Because you know the training centre must be worth millions, um, and you know something could have been done with Ibrox. I, I don't know, but they just never seemed to do it, um, and we hurtled towards um, liquidation at a rate of knots without any real attempt to 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 stop it. But that's certainly how it's seen from the outside. Should it, should it not be as well when you might, you can obviously have your opinion on this, but see like a, an institution, like Rangers are a massive institution in Scotland, one of the biggest I would say, but should it not be a case of like an independent company should be going in as administrators, administrators and actually investigating? How can the owner put putting the club into administration be allowed to appoint his own administrators? I mean, could the, one of the big four accounting firms not have went, been in, been in been put in there by an independent body to really assess just what is going on here because I mean the too big to fail thing was something I was burying my head in the sand with I didn't think I, I couldn't see this going the way it did and because I was under the impression something will turn up but I mean you look at like Ernst and Young KMPG could one of them not have went in and been appointed to maybe go in there and actually thoroughly investigate just what is going on here well, I, mean, I think H- I think that's what HMRC wanted because yeah. if memory serves me, they went to court mm-hmm. to try and to try and stop Duffin Phelps being appointed administrators, and 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 Craig White won that particular court battle. Um, and as I say, on you know, sliding doors, spin of a coin, whatever whatever analogy you want to use, you know what, what might have happened had somebody like one of the bigger four been <coughs> put in. Mm-hmm. Now, now one they would have uncovered a lot more perhaps than Duffin Phelps did. But on the other side, they would have done what you would expect an administrator to do, and they would have sold a whole bunch of our assets, which certainly in 2022, I have to say I'm pretty glad they didn't, because our recovery would have been an awful lot harder if we didn't have a training centre, and we were starting from scratch in that regard as well. Yeah, so. and, and the next three months were just grim. I mean, there's so much we could go into. We're going to... We're going to touch on a couple of things, but how grim were the next three months? Just it was every day. It was just relentless, wasn't it? It was just constant bad news. It was, but I think it showed the very worst of Scotland. Mm-hmm. I have to say, um, you know, everybody was lining up to to take a kick at us. Now I know during the muddy years there was all sorts of hubris and and everything else, but. It was just so hard to stomach the way that everybody was like judge, jury, and executioner, and, mm-hmm. and was was wanting to, want to have a whack at us. You know, um, Jim Spence. You remember Jim Spence? The role yeah. that he played at this point on, on, on yeah. the BBC every night. He was on every night. He, he, him and Spears were on every night. Every night it was either him or Spence. Him or Spears were on. The, the the kind of wee debate shows and the, you could just tell they were loving being there. Oh, well, listen, absolutely. And it's a sharp contrast. Look, everybody's got this opinion of, you know, Rangers fans being, you know, having this sort of superiority complex. We are the people, all that kind of stuff. But I have been at plenty of games over the years, Scott, when it's teams that have been in trouble, Motherwell, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, cans are getting passed around and you, I can absolutely guarantee you that you know, money was being was was being given 
um, you know, benefit games, all these things. We've any time a club's been in trouble, we've always been at the front front mm-hmm. of the queue to try and help out. And we never saw any of that. We never saw any of that. We never saw any sort of political support. We never saw any support from the governing body. I thought the SFA behaved absolutely shamefully throughout the whole thing. We'll, get, we'll touch on that. Um, um, and uh, and then of course the clubs with their vindictive campaign and you know sort of refusal to show any kind of leadership or compassion um, was was ridiculous. And, and 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 as it wound up to the the inevitable moment where you know, the vote about whether or not we get back into the league and all this kind of stuff. It, it was it was the very worst of Scotland, I think. And, you know, without making too political a point, I think, you know, the, the sort of national political agenda um, uh, had certainly played in, in, into it because Rangers were seen as the precise opposite of um, the prevailing sort of political mood in the country. The yeah, time. and this was around the time the kind of referendum was was being... Was it through at that point, like this, there was going to be a vote or was it just getting to that stage? It was just getting... So administration started... I, the reason I know this is because, again, sort of divulging my employment yeah. history, I left the cops in June 2014... Uh, 2012, just uh-huh. after administration, to go and, go and start working on the, the Better Together campaign. Yeah. Uh, so the referendum... I think I think the the prime minister announced in the January that there was going to be a referendum, um, and it all started gearing up that, that summer. So it was, yeah. Uh, I just think the Rangers were seen as the other side, and you know people who were bought into that sort of nationalist agenda were, were more than happy to to do their utmost to to uh, to kick us while we were down. Yeah, you mentioned the SFA as well, and I want to, I want to bring up this point because administration was announced on the fourteenth, but. The SFA, in my opinion, were very quick to to lead a, an inquiry, shall we say, and they appointed, obviously, Lord Nimmo Smith to, to lead an inquiry. It wasn't the, the timing of the, the announcement of the inquiry that surprised me, but they they brought in Lord Nimmo Smith, who, ha, as we, we know, is a very, he's probably the most kind of high-profile kind of lord in the country in terms of the, the kind of Justice Council. He was, in, he was involved in the the Lockerbie Bomber case as well. So he was, a, I mean, one of the top guys, but they'd they'd bizarrely asked him to to give a report within two weeks. And that to me is just bizarre. And only in Scottish football would that happen. How can how can you ask this guy to to have a kind of some sort of review of this case within two weeks? He must have stuff like this takes months to get really into detail on it. Like what was what was the reaction to that at the time? Because it wasn't the inquiry that was the announcement of an inquiry. I think we knew that was coming, but to have this guy brought in, who obviously would have been on a, a fair a fair chunk of a wage, I would imagine, to have him have to submit a report within two weeks was bizarre to me. Well, there's that, and also look, rules are rules, right? We understand mm-hmm. that, and clearly some rule, clearly some rules have been broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, all of that needs addressed. I understand that. Um, but as a member organisation, surely your first duty of care is to help the member organisation that is in distress. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than it being a, you know, somebody from the SFA going in and saying, right, how can we help? How can we help? You know, because there's players that's not going to get paid. You know, they're the, we're the biggest football club in the country, all this kind of stuff. There was no sense of 
Right, we're the SFA. This is one of our members, one of our most important members that are in deep, deep trouble, um, staring down the, the barrel of the gun. What can we do to help now? At some point, there will need to be a reckoning for this. You know, as far as we're concerned, you know, you know, all of us will need to get looked at. But, our, but, but in the first instance, what can we do to to help steady the ship? There was none of that. It was just a right. Let's get to the bottom of who's done what, and then let's start dishing out the punishment. And I mm-hmm. just think it was it was it, it was something must be done. And, and to be fair, look, you know, to shoot Reagan and all those guys, they're sitting in their office in the sixth floor at Hamden. And they are watching the same TV that we are, and they're reading the same newspapers as we are. Night after night, there's you know people calling us cheats and God knows mm-hmm. what else. So they're they're under extraordinary pressure to to be seen to be doing something. But mm-hmm. you know, leadership sometimes is you know, standing into the wind, and 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 still having the courage to sort of walk on to do the right thing. And there was there was never any of that. And I just think it's so disappointing because. Um, you know, here is some, here, you know, even from a basic level, you know, one of your members is, you know, in deep trouble and lots of people are going to lose their jobs. What can we do to help? Yeah. And, and there was never any of that. And, mm-hmm. I, and to this day, it's, you know, I've always been a big Scotland fan and even at a time where it was unfashionable for a Rangers fan to be a Scotland fan. And, you know, all through my time of working with the Scotland national team and all this kind of stuff. You know, I, I always held my place as a Scotland fan, but I've never been back since, and I, and I will never go back. It's just bizarre, and I mean, the sanctions as well. I just thought were ridiculous. Like, I mean, you remember the, the match as well, but it wasn't. It wasn't. A, it wasn't just the the thing about the kind of the reports about cheating and things like that. But it was also a case of these sanctions were going to cost people's jobs, like not just on field yeah. staff, like off field staff, like. Ticket people that work in the ticket office, for example, the catering staff. I remember this uh, hearing a story. I think I was a player that told me this that I think seven of the seven members of a family were doing the catering at Murray Park, and I think they all got cut that day because of obviously they were cutting costs. And you just think you, you think about people like that in that circumstance. Like it was just it, it was so quick to react. Like it was as you say, it, was. it, was, it wasn't a case of let's see what we can do here to actually just. Find a find the best solution for all parties. It was just these quick and the SFA and the SPL were always very rational decision making. But this in particular was just ridiculous. It wasn't. If you remember, you know the march, yeah, march on Hampton. Um, you know the banners that were all up were, were all about you know SFA sanctions cost jobs because it was mm-hmm. exactly that. Yeah, you know, it, it was. You know, and, and you know Sandy Jordan and. When he, when he was speaking to the media at the time, you know, he was that's what he was saying. He's saying, look, this is people's livelihoods. Forget about the footballs for a minute. Mm-hmm. They're highly paid, they're highly skilled, they'll go somewhere else. But there's there's dozens of people, you know, who uh, who who are, who are who are in danger of losing their livelihoods and you know, we need to try and help them. Um but yeah, I mean that was never taken into account because it was just a who can be seen to be doing the most vindictive thing the most quickly, and, and that, that unfortunately was the atmosphere at the time. Yeah, the three months were grim, but there was one bright light of the the whole situation for Rangers fans was the the one over Celtic, the three two victory that stopped Celtic winning the league. That day just felt like obviously I think people were going in that day thinking this could be whatever Celtic wanted to be, but Rangers showed that fight that I think was it was it felt like a cause, didn't it? If, I remember Ian Crocker's line that this is a this is a win for the cause, and that's what it felt like. It felt like this, just one for the fans, and I just remember that day just 
what a what a day that was because it wasn't just about beating Celtic. It was just a feel good nature that the the fans so badly needed at that point. Yeah, it was pure defiance, wasn't it? It was yeah. absolute defiance. It was like you can, you know, we've we've taken taken a taken a you know a doing off absolutely everybody, but do you know what? You're not going to come to our place. You're not going to win the league, and that's just the end yet. Um, and I remember walking up to the game that day, supremely confident that we weren't going to get beat. I just knew it. And um, what an iconic! I mean, there's there's loads of iconic images from that day. You know, Sonia Luko up in the Hortons. Lee Wallace running with his arms in there. There's just yeah. it was a brilliant a penny arcade. You remember the penny arcade yeah, before yeah. the game? And ah, oh, just oh, it was absolutely terrific. It was a it was a brilliant day, um, much needed. And you know, it ended up it ended up it didn't it, it didn't change anything other than the fact um, it stopped it stopped the worst of all because you know them coming to our place and when we were at our absolute lowest ebb and giving us a stuff and, and winning the league on our turf would have been pretty hard to come back from I think yeah I think so I think as well but there is talk of new buyers there is talk of people coming in to be the saviour like the Blue Knights uh, Brian Kennedy was also they kind of joined their bid at, at some point as well but it did feel as if there was people coming to try and save the club it did it did feel do you remember that like it, it did feel that there was interest from from guys Blue Knights in particular I think were desperate to try and get get in there and really kind of bring the club back to good health but they were kind of do you think do you think they ever had a chance of really doing anything other than what happened now this is where the, this is where the actual scandal is Scott I think is that um, the club was only going to go to one person yeah um, and no matter what no matter what MDLs did it was going to charge green mm-hmm. um, because you know Again, you know the, the Blue Knights and Billing, and there was all these different different, different guys, um, and you know, people were being you know given access to the books and everything else, and then out of absolutely nowhere, Charles Green's announced his preferred preferred bidder, and he sat in the stand the next day uh, watching the game with a club tie on. Yeah, the Bill Miller one's a weird one because he was he was named preferred bidder, and he was he was adamant from the start, like we're doing this the new cool way, and. At the time, that was unpopular with the support, and it, it was. And but Bill Miller, obviously, I don't understand what happened there because he must have went in there with the new co idea and was was told otherwise because he had one look at the the books and went, "Yeah, I'm out of here. I'm not getting involved in that." The only way I can think of it is he must have been told that a CVA was happening. He must have thought, "Oh, we're getting a CVA," and looked at the books and went, "That's not possible." That's the only way I can summarize that because. He was named preferred bidder. Seemed to be really interested in doing a deal, and then two days later, he was he was gone. And that's yeah. a weird one. To well, exactly right. Yeah, but again, you know, why is a guy coming forward ready to do you know, to to buy the club and do all this kind of stuff, and then two days later he's gone? Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. None, none of the stuff that happens round about that period when Charles Green comes in makes any sense. Yeah, uh, the, least of all the sudden, least of all the sudden appearance of Charles Green from absolutely nowhere, from and nowhere to yeah. Blue Knights out, preferred bidder sitting in the stand by a club tie on next to Sandy Charlton. The Blue Knights is weird yeah. as well because I there's stories come out since that Paul Murray, Paul and you you know Paul Murray as, as well is a really nice guy, but the thing with Paul Murray is that these guys were it seemed as if that White was never going to sell his shares to them. 
and that was what you needed at that point. White was off the grid. White was, I think, Monaco he was away to, but he still had the shares. So to get into the club, you had to get the shares off him. And I mean, Paul Murray's come out since and said that he was never getting the shares off. I think Brian Kennedy as well said that he was only getting the shares if he removed Murray from the situation. And that just screams to me that we spoke about last week that David Murray as well, he was talking about selling the club to the best, the guy with the best interest, the club at heart. This is what these guys absolutely did have the best interest in the club at heart, but they were never ever going to get the club because they were going to go under the bonnet and find some horrendous things that would expose these guys. Yep. As I say, you know, without sort of getting myself into a position where you know, you're shut down because of lawyers, uh, lawyers' letters. Uh, all, all I can say is, is, as far as I'm concerned, it was inevitable that the club was going to Charles Green. Now, what circumstances were were, were at play behind the scenes that, that made that possible? I do not know, and I cannot possibly sort of speculate of it. But all all I know in my heart of hearts is that Roman Abramovich could have stepped up at the last minute and it would still have sold the club to Charles Green. Yeah, and that obviously, as you say, it was that final game of the season against St. Johnson, this horrendous league season was over, but Charles Green had, he came in from nowhere and within two days he'd, he'd bought Craig White shares and he was now in, in command at the club. And I remember that day, the, con- the press conference with him and uh, was Imran, Imran Ahmed. Yes. I mean, my word. You look at, and he, this guy would literally say anything to get the fans on board. Literally, yeah. Uh, say and do anything. You know, he was. Um, well, he was very good at what he did. You know, he 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 jammed the pants yeah. off us, and, and he managed he managed to convince us to part with millions of pounds in the share issue, which um, disappeared rather quickly. Um, <laughs> but you know, he was he was charismatic. He was a you know he was a, he was a, he was a showman. You know, all the stuff of. When the season tickets went on sale, when he was out giving cups of tea and bits of toast to people who were in the queue early, and yeah. a Yorkshire Derek daughter is that fair to say? I think so. I um, <laughs> and he's you know his benign influence on the club was you know was utterly shameful, and you know he for me he's right up there with with Craig White as the um, you know you've got that it's difficult. There's just so many dark forces during this period. You know the yeah. details and. Derek Lambias and Christ knows how many you know names that will make your skin crawl just even saying them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Green's right up, Green's right up the top of the list for me because he 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 he, he nakedly fleeced the club. Mm-hmm. He just came in, he got us out of part with a bunch of money. He he um he did very well financially and then he buggered off and uh, and for that he should never be forgiven. No, and obviously he comes in and. He seems that he's, he wants to do a CBA. There was eight and a half million there for for creditors, but HMRC were never ever going to do a deal, and I think they must have known that because. And you can argue did HMRC do the best for everybody involved? And I've said at the start of the show, I don't think they did. But the problem with this was is that you had guys like Paul Murray and say and Dave King saying that liquidation would mean a a break in the club and that's kind of obviously we'll talk about that in a second but that's kind of where the the bad the bad people who who hate Rangers have that that the at the time they were 
these guys were trying to get a CBA and they, they said obviously the bad stuff about liquidation and things like that but liquidation was it was always going down that route wasn't it it was never there was never going to be a CBA basically because HMRC didn't want one well it goes back to what we were speaking about earlier Scott isn't it that if you make an enemy of HMRC then you're then you're absolutely snickered and mm-hmm. uh, and that's what we did sadly and you know there was, there was absolutely no room to manoeuvre because we owed them so much money um, that that I agree with you. I think it was inevitable that we were going to end up where we did. I mean, on the point of, you know, the comments about, you know, a break in a club and everything else, I mean, you've got to put that in the context of the time, which is, yeah. you know, they were trying to, they were trying to apply whatever kind of public and gather as much political support as they could yeah. um, for the CBA route. So, I mean, I think you have to look at that. I don't, I don't think, I don't think even they at the time sort of, believe that you know what they were saying was, was, was necessarily true but mm-hmm. unfortunately the uh, the detractors of the club have always got have always always sort of call that kind of stuff in aid when they're when they're trying to sort of say that Rangers is a new club which obviously you know it's, it's not even a question anymore. You know, and we'll, every, yeah everybody, everybody who has an authority authoritative view on whether Rangers are a new club or not has, has ruled and said that they're not but that doesn't stop people from um no no, nah, but as, as we say, everybody will be everybody that will be listening to this will be desperate to this stage. Yeah, Rangers are the same club. There's no every single like governing body has declared that. There's no debate in that regard. That the nonsense that's spouted about the the Safeco stuff and all that is nonsense, Rob. Isn't it? Absolutely. But it's, well, I mean, it's, I mean, UEFA, FIFA, Christ, even the Advertising Standards Agency of 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 ruled, you know, sort of courts. You name it, everybody has said it. But you know, if you uh, if you want to stick your fingers in your ears and, and not listen to what's being said and just listen to your own voice, then there's nothing that there's nothing that reasonable people can do about that. Yeah, and obviously that meant where where did Rangers go from here? And three things I want to touch on before we kind of wrap up the show and things like that. The the first thing was where were Rangers going to play? The the vote to me the vote to get back into the SPL is I think one of the worst things out of this whole situation because the SPL clubs obviously had had an anger towards Rangers but they put it to their fans who in my opinion they're, they're not football fans that to come out and say that you're going to boycott your own club because you hate this other club who are big, big bad Rangers you hate them you won't buy season tickets for your own club to me you're not a football fan. To me, to me, you, you you don't deserve you don't deserve a season ticket. Give a season ticket to somebody who actually goes to a game and cares about their club. Because if your hatred for Rangers oversees your your love of your own club, then to me, you're you're the worst of the worst in my opinion in terms of a football fan. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I, 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 I it was inexplicable what was going on. You know, I, and again, you know, we talk, we talked about the lack of leadership at the SFA and. You know, the sort of spineless nature of the of of the the boards of the of the various SPL clubs was was utterly ridiculous because you know they they, they were they were taking a decision that they knew would bring financial harm to them but they did it anyway mm-hmm. um, and all this pitch about sort of we'll, we'll we'll ask the fans to decide it was decided in the boardroom and they used the fans as cover yeah absolutely um, it's, it's just a nonsense. And, and, and you know, I said before that we saw the worst of Scotland during this period, and we certainly saw it during that that sort of two weeks leading up to the vote, where you know you had club after club coming out and saying 
you know, for, for, for sporting integrity and all this nonsense. Uh, you know, we, we can't support it. It, it. it was just, it was just nonsense. And, and I end up at that point when all that stuff was going on, uh, and I, uh, I, I know a lot of fans were the same. I'd, I'd resolved at that point that we should go right down to the bottom and start again. I, I think every Rangers fan resolved the was all that mindset of right. This needs to be. It wasn't Rangers that were advocating to be given freeway up the leagues. It was Stuart Regan and Neil Doncaster. They were the ones. Was it Armageddon? That was Armageddon, that was the, yeah. that was the word at the time. That was what they were spouting. That this is this is Armageddon. Rangers need to be up the league now. If you're looking at it from an S, SFL point of view, these clubs wanted Rangers at the at the fourth and the third division for the, the revenue they would bring in. There wasn't any there wasn't any other way that it wouldn't have been fair if Rangers had been parachuted to the, the first division. It had to be the third division. And I don't remember a Rangers fan at the time saying Rangers have to be shot up the leagues. I don't remember that. So it was no. those two guys that were beating that drum that Rangers had to be put on the I remember SPL two as well, just that's nonsense that these guys were spouting to try and get yeah. Rangers up the league because they knew the disaster this would be. Yeah, I, 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 I'm the same as you. I didn't know a single one of my fellow Rangers fans that was it, it was either we're back in the SPL or we're or we're, or we're going down and we'll, and we'll work our way back up. Thanks very much. And as the weeks went on, more and more people were, I think, in the latter camp, which is well, hell, Menji, we'll go down. Yeah, and now, it was a right, it was a right, it, it didn't for, for 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 many enjoyable years to come. By the no, way, no, it was a, a grim time. It was a grim time, and we'll touch upon it in the next week or so, but the whole thing of the players as well, and this was where Green was kind of found out, in my opinion, because he was trying to to make it clear that these players had to Chupi over. Now, I don't know if anyone listening has been part of a a Chupi agreement. Chupi, I've been part of it. It's basically when you work for one company and your contract is basically transferred to another company, a transfer of undertakings, Rob, I believe it's called, and the yeah. players, a lot of the players were adamant that they didn't have to. This wasn't a, this wasn't le- legal. The players had the option to, to not to pay across, and some of them didn't. The likes of Lee Wallace and Lee McCulloch for me will always be legends at the club because they decided to. But some people handled the to pay situation well. The likes of McCulloch, Wallace, I mean Stephen Davis, for example, he to paid over. Then I think has he was sold to Southampton for like a development fee or something like that. It was some bizarre thing, yeah. but. There were guys that didn't handle it great. Is that fair to say? Talking about our two friends, Mr. Whitaker and Mr. Naismith here, aren't we? Yes. Um, and it's a tough one for that's a tough one for me because I I'm a huge Stephen Whitaker, I kinda I think I, I wouldn't I'm not gonna mention him here because he's he wasn't a Rangers fan and I I think we've seen later on in later years. I mean, yeah, to me, if you're a Rangers player, you should never be allowing your son to wear a Celtic top going into Celtic Park that, that's maybe me maybe being disrespectful but that to me you shouldn't be doing that but Stephen Naismith's a tough one because I think he I think he was hurting in a way but I think he was so badly advised that he just he said things that I think he'll, I mean some Rangers fans to me I've kind of I've kind of let, let it go in my regard because I think he was badly advised by people who I don't think I think we're enjoying the situation, is that fair to say, Rob? But Naismith, to me, he didn't help himself in this regard because he said things that he should never have said. Yeah, uh, I'll never forgive Naismith. Look, uh, he was badly advised and 
his agent is no friend of Rangers. No. And there's all sorts of circumstances you could call in mitigation for the lad, but ultimately he allowed those words to come out of his mouth at a time where we were at our lowest end. Yeah. And for and that, he should, he should never be forgiven. And it's kind of weird because obviously I know people that know him personally and things like that, and I know how much he regrets this, and I've heard it from a lot of people that he's... But he just—it was just so bad. It was, and that was the thing. It was—it was perceived as this is a Rangers fan who was kicking the kicking the fans when they were down, and he was feeding into the the people who were loving this, and he was giving them another reason to have a go at Rangers fans. And that I think is the reason that a lot of Rangers fans will probably never forgive him because he went too far, in my opinion. He should have just—he should have done what McGregor Lafferty did. And other guys like that who just they left they left their toupee but they shut their mouth and went out the door the the right way they didn't say anything and obviously they've been welcomed back in the past and I don't think Naismith ever will be because of us. No, uh, and neither should they. Look, I'm a I'm a good Christian lad uh, and uh, believe you know people being given second chances and you know forgiveness and all those great Christian values and they all apply to. Everybody on God's good earth, apart from one man, and it's Stephen D. Smith. He can <laughs> bugger off as far as I'm concerned. I will never forgive him. Uh, it was, it was, uh, in, in 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 weeks, months, and years of misery. I think that was, that was the lowest of the low. And and I'll, I, as I say, I, I'll I'll never be able to forgive him. And you know, I, I'd, I, I can't imagine a situation where he's ever allowed back in Ibrox again. Which is a shame for him because he has a big he has a big Rangers fan. But... Yeah, and it's just yeah, it's just been it's it's a bad situation. But the final thing we'll touch on before we kind of wrap the show up was the two days before Rangers were put down to the third division and they were to start the the journey as it were, obviously away to breaking in the Ramses Cup. Rangers didn't have a license. Rangers did not have a license to play in Scottish football, and that leads us to the infamous five way agreement when. This to me is the the epitome of just how symbolic this operation all was because Rangers obviously just want I, I think Rangers just wanted to get on with the football and not but and not worry about what was what was coming. But obviously this independent inquiry with Lord Lamar Smith was in the background and the SPL wanted the right to strip Rangers of their titles. Now for me, Ali McCoyce deserves a bunch of credit for this because he was adamant, and this was my childhood, and these titles are my childhood. And if Ali McCoy didn't stick, dig his heels in and get the get the SPL to drop this nonsense, then I think we probably would have been talking about these titles being stripped because I think they would have found a way, no matter the verdict, if Rangers had waived the right to that. And this to me is McCoy at his very best because he he stuck up for the fans, he stuck up for the club, and didn't allow these guys to do this. If it was anybody other than Ali McCoy and Sandy Jarden in, in that office in the sixth floor of Hamden, we would have lost the titles. Yes, There's just a, no question of that. A thousand percent. They, they are they are they are owed a momentous debt of gratitude from, from all of us. But it should never have been on the table in the first place because no. you know, it goes against natural justice. You know, you, the whole point about dishing out punishments is that it's after you have been found guilty of, of said crime and we hadn't been at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even when you know the first verdict came out from HMRC, we, you know, we won that. They only lost it on the field, and you know we would have given away so much, so much. And you know, like Charles Green would have been quite happy just to yeah, he he didn't get, he didn't give a toss. 
No. Yeah. It's only because of the two people we had in the room. Yeah. Being Alan McCoy's and Sandy Jarvin that we are that we are where we are today. And as I say, you know, there's many things about the SFA and SPFL's handling of the situation that is shameful. You know, there's nothing worse than this because if you remember, if, if, I'm not going to say what the guys reported have said for obvious reasons, but one of the guys at the SPL was reported to have certainly, it was certainly reported to be an unbiased guy, but going by what he's apparently meant to have said, I think you can question that. So, um, yeah, that's what you're up against. I, I, as I say, that's it's the worst of Scotland. It's 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 vindictiveness. It's you know, let's see how much flesh we can rip off the bones. And you know, the five-way agreement is, I think, a really really dark period in Scottish football um, because it, it goes against it goes against every instinct, every every perceivable notion of of natural justice. Um, and and yet still they powered on and they powered on. Um, with vigour and you know, I, uh, fair play to Ali and fair play, God rest them, to Sandy Jarvin because they were, I, the, they were the people that stopped it. And if you, I absolutely, I mean, Sandy Jarvin as well, what an unbelievable presence he was and just a figure in Rangers culture at that time. Just to, as you say, I don't think if it wasn't for McCoy's and Jarvin and this whole thing, the, t- the two of them just carried the club at this point. And this goes, this goes to the point of the cheating thing. If you asked any person who was claiming that Rangers cheated, if you asked them well, what they cheated on, they couldn't give you an answer. I remember Tom Boyd as well, and I don't want to close a show talking about Tom Boyd, so we'll talk about something else before we wrap up. But he'd come out and said that Rangers had cheated through nine in a row. Yeah, that shows exactly what they do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And These guys were just desperate to, or you have cheated. Yeah, but how have we cheated? Oh, we, and there was no answer. There was nothing because they, they just it was just about, yeah, Let's just have a dig, have a let's get this as bad as possible. And it wasn't about anything other than let's just get a dig in. Let's just, I mean, to me, if I mean, Tom Boyd would have probably taken those medals in a heartbeat, he would have ripped those medals off. But it just shows you, like, these that's just ridiculous because though the Rangers players worked their balls off to get those titles it, what, it, there was no sporting advantage the two t- the first two titles I saw Rangers win were won by a goal and on the final day you can't tell me there was sporting advantage there Rob no it's just a nonsense uh, and thankfully common, head, common sense prevailed and you know when Lord Nimmo Smith actually published his, his full report you know, he recognised that and yeah. you know much to the annoyance of everybody who's who was waiting for his report to to be the rubber stamp on what they already thought, um, it was it, it, it was great. But you know, there was just, uh, yeah, yeah, the days of sound like a, a broken record, Scott. This was this was the worst of Scotland. This was just vindictiveness for this um, that had been pent up for years and years and years was just allowed to run 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 rampant. And you know, you know Tom Boyd's not exactly being blessed with intellect. God nah. bless him. So for for him to sort of you know sort of try and get get some get some sort of medals that weren't actually up for dispute is just sort of an example of how thick he is so um, Tom Boyd ladies and gentlemen yeah and we'll close the show by just assessing the whole legacy of this situation just quickly Rob how how much did this impact everybody because it was just it was as we say we've spent about an hour and a half talking about it and there's there's a lot we've probably missed but there was so much going on and just every day you had a sore head and Assessing it again, what was the overall legacy of that situation? 
I mean, the, the legacy standing now 10 years later, I, I think is almost perversely is a, is, is a positive one. I think it's brought us closer to the club. Um, I think that the, 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 the bond between the fans and the club has been strengthened by you know, the fact that we, we went right to the brink. And the second sort of positive sort of legacy point, I think, is that we'll never allow ourselves to take a blind eye to a situation like that again. I think we'll forever be sceptical. And that's why you see now the boards uh, of Rangers who, you know, you'd have to be a fool to suggest that they're not Rangers men and not, not yeah. don't have the best interests of the club at heart. But it's still, they get criticised, you know, deeply and fiercely by the Rangers fans because we will hold the custodians of the club to a, a, an incredibly high standard from now on because of because of the period that we went through um, between 2011 and 2015. So I, I think for the future, it's it's made us stronger. It was one of the worst periods of my life uh, you know, because I have family, friends and Rangers and, and that's it. And Rangers nearly was nearly taken from me, and, and it was it, it was just horrific. And I'm, and I'm sure every every Rangers fan who lived through that period would say the exact same thing. Yeah, I totally agree. I couldn't have put it better myself. On the next part of the Rangers journey, we're going to split it into two parts. We're going to do the next three years are are there's relentless news in the next three years on the park and off the park as Rangers go down to the lower leagues. On Tuesday's episode, we will take a look at the on-field action when Rangers went through the leagues in the first three seasons. And on Friday, we're going to have a special episode where we're going to review all the bad antics that happened off the park. To my guest this week, Rob, thank you very much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. It was, was, despite the uh, subject matter, it was, uh, it was an enjoyable hour and a half. So thanks very much for inviting me. Brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much to everyone that's tuned in and please follow us for the next part of the Rangers journey.